0: Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thanks very much, Dennis. And this is really exciting to to be here today. I am, like most of the speakers today, going to share my screen with you and. I'm excited to have a conversation today about cities and neighbourhoods, but particularly what we've observed about um, cities and neighbourhoods during COVID, which I think is a whole new ballgame for um, all of us uh, in in that regard. Um, So... What I've sort of titled the talk today, The New Local, which kind of summarises a lot of what we have um, really been finding and observing when we think from a Napolitics perspective uh, about what's happened in cities. But to start that off as to what Napolitics even is and and what we're doing about data capture and cities, I want to ask you to think about your favourite place. And if you're you're in the chat, drop it in there. If you've got like a, a, a place that you love or feel connected to or... Um, somewhere that inspires you, perhaps somewhere that you've spent um, a lot of time recently. Um, There's, uh, you know, the places that we we love and feel connected to have these really uh, distinctive personalities about them. They're they're memorable and they're often incredibly human spaces uh, rather than physical spaces. Um, one of my um, favorite spaces is Preston Market. It's right close to where I live. This is this photo was taken pre-COVID, as you can probably see by how many people there are without wearing masks uh, in that photo. And what I love about this space is that physically it is actually just a bunch of sheds, but it really comes to life by by the traders and the and the people who who go there. Uh, and so, when it comes to really understanding cities and and um, and and where they are, um, a lot of it has to do with understanding this human side of neighborhoods. Um, so, what we've really seen during COVID, um, and I'm just going to go back one second, is that this is the same market. Um, just three months later, and I think uh, views like this have been so common to our experience of neighbourhoods in the last six months, and it's heartbreaking to see in lots of ways uh, as the sort of lifeblood has been uh, sucked out of lots of places. But at the same time, we're seeing these pockets of resilience emerge, and, and you know, how is it that some Businesses, community organisations are able to one day be a cafe and then 48 hours later they're completely pivoted. They are a grocery store and takeaway and delivery, which just takes ex- extraordinary innovation um, and, and real resilience. Uh, and we've seen that um, really show up everywhere. But one of the places that that shows up is in the digital record about how businesses talk about themselves online, what their business registration is, what their offering is. And so there's things that we can start to quantify, which is really interesting. One of the real perspectives that I, I'm sure many of you take, but certainly from Navalytics, is that if, you know, it's to back to the sort of age old quote, I think now from Peter Drucker, that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And when it comes to shaping places and communities, we typically tend to invest in things that we're able to measure. So perhaps numbers of jobs, how fast the traffic is going, the of apartment sold, and those things are all important to do. But if we're if we really only focusing on measuring how fast the traffic is going to go, then we're generally going to invest more in building more roads and and, and try to unblock traffic. If we can quantify in the same way the things that perhaps have only historically been understood qualitatively, like community strengths and economic ecosystems, then we can start to have new data sets that help us to identify and prioritise change. I have a, a quick poll question here um, to ask you, uh, and um, I, I'm interested to know, first of all, because we're going to be talking about data in this presentation, uh, where how data mature you would suggest that your... Um, organization is. Uh, and that could be either that you are considered to be data driven. So you have the exact data that you need to make a decision that your data informed. So data is a guide to help you optimize your performance. Data inspired. Um, so, you know, you use data, but um, it's uh, it's something that informs your otherwise um, professional judgment or your data aware, which might mean that you follow external research and best practices kind of in the market, but generally they are things that you follow as trends and the, and the decisions that you make are perhaps more based on expertise from uh, your particular project. So if you go to the poll tab, there is a poll up there uh, and it's not a loaded question. It's just, I'm just curious to know whether you think that uh, on on the sort of scale of data maturity, and there are, there are different um applications, I guess, for different types of data in different situations, whether you are data-driven, data-informed, data-inspired, or data-aware. So if you want to jump into the poll tab, that would be um, something that would be keen to look at. Interesting. So far, we're sort of data-inspired and data-informed. And, and and the reason I guess I, I put that uh, poll up there is that we talk about data-driven decision-making a lot, but often, I guess, sort of technically, we're not necessarily talking about being completely data-driven and that we rely only on the data and the number to make a decision, it's that we're using data and a range of other experiential inputs that we have in terms of how we piece together the problem. And they're all valid um, approaches. So moving forward, One of the challenges that we have when it comes to measuring the human stuff, technical term, is that it's really hard. And I have no doubt that that is very similar to many of the organizations here and your experience in various ways. Uh, When it comes to looking at how we measure the human side of cities traditionally, Uh, there are pretty limited or or fairly manual ways that we can do that. So we can look at the the ABS or the census information, which is useful as a record, but it's only once every five years and it only tells us the story of who lives there, not who visits and uses and works in a neighbourhood. And I think, you know, um, the the events of 2020 have shown us that, you know, perhaps 2016 data isn't necessarily the most up-to-date data source that we want to be thinking about for our very live decision-making that we need on impacts of things like COVID-19. You know, surveys, focus groups, observations, all fantastic methods and I've spent many, many, many hours of, of my career doing all of these methods which we support. One of this, the challenges is when it comes to really understanding things at a population scale it can be really hard to get this kind of data if we're trying to say track change over time, do something every month, just the, the cost and effort required is just too great. So then thinking about that differently, I guess the way that Neighbourlytics sends that problem in its head is using the everyday data that you and I generate by interacting with our neighbourhoods every day uh, as a, a new source of information that speaks to the behaviour and lifestyle of places. We call this social data, but I'm not talking about social media data and I'm not talking about personal data. This is data that's created from unconventional digital sources like Think Google Maps, Eventbrite, ratings and reviews, check-ins, likes. That's indicative of people's behavior and lifestyle at a population scale. This data is generated worldwide, everywhere, across multiple platforms. And it's the fingerprints that we leave behind about the places we've been what we value and interact with. There's three kind of types of this data and I, and I, I just wanna talk about them briefly because it underpins the case studies that I'm gonna show you shortly. One of them is places data. So this is the things that we see and touch in the real world, parks, libraries, community centers, businesses, But when we look at that in the digital record, where it's different from, say, a government business register, is that it is crowdsourced information. So you're going to be, it has this 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 sort of colloquial map of the city. So platforms like Google Maps, even though we think of them as kind of a source of truth, the the things that are on there are things that either have put themselves there or there are things that have a critical mass of activity around them and the internet recognises that as a place of interest and adds it in that way. And so there is this behavioural overtone to that data. We can then look at activities and events and this tells us what's going on. So not just what's there in the park, but that the park is used by soccer clubs and parents groups and has other events and activities going on. And then finally, we look at engagement and stories, which is user generated information about how people interact with their place in an anonymized and aggregated way. So again, this isn't personal posts, but it's publicly available information such as blogs, photos, ratings and reviews, check-ins that gives us what people value about that place. Now, what's interesting when we look at the engagement and stories data is we tend to not see sort of, you know, photos of people picking up the dry cleaning, but we do seem to see photos of people having picnics with friends in the park. And there is that, um, I guess, strengths bias that people want to show that they were somewhere, they were with someone they were doing something. So Napolitics really mashes all of this data together to create kind of a master data set that we can then use for um, future analysis. What that looks like is if we just, you know, jump to somewhere like um, uh, Piemont in Sydney, just as an example, um, uh, we can see that it's got a physical space. Um, in 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 the one hand, that it's um it's got views and buildings and and other spaces, and then on the other hand, it's an incredibly social space. It has a, it has events and programs and a social life and a heartbeat, and we can see those things show up uh, on the map. Uh, similarly, we can then Um, look at how that place operates at different times of the day and days of the week and how it's different perhaps on a a Thursday evening than it is on a Saturday morning because we know that we experience place in 24-hour time, not in static time. Uh, And then we can also um, understand uh, values by what people interact with and share as the dominant themes and topics. So we're talking about behaviour here, not opinion and perception, so it's not what people like so much as what's valued in the sense of are parks more important than um, sport, more important than food and beverage, more important than hobbies in this particular neighbourhood. And I'll talk about some use cases uh, in in the moment. So understanding that, you know, one of the really interesting things and, and, you know, while Neighbourlytics uses this data in a particularly unique way to understand place-based challenges and problems. Um, we're definitely not unique in looking at this data and MIT has, has been leading the research in this area for, for 20 years. And one of the things that they've really found is that this type of location data is, is up to five times more accurate than demographics when it comes to understanding and predicting behavior. And, and an example of that that I, I sometimes look at um, is that is that if you ask me in a survey, how often I go to the gym, like my sort of self-perceived perception of, of how, how fit I am, I'm likely to tell you what I want you to think about me or, or what I, my aspiration is for myself when my, my cell phone is going to show that I only go once a week, perhaps. And so the, the location is actually a very good predictor of what we do. And similarly, when we're asking people surveys about what they like about their neighbourhood, that will be very influenced about, you know, I like the market, I like the park, but, you know, my location is going to show whether I actually go there. Uh, and and how places are used is a really strong predictor of behaviour and lifestyle. So one of the really interesting things that we find about looking at a big data approach for place measurement is is when it comes to sort of traditional information we have a very linear approach like uh and we're you know we're not anti-survey by any sense (laughs) but um surveys you get the information you get the answers to the questions that you asked uh one of the opportunities that you have with i guess a new data approach or more experimental data is that you you can sort of look for those answers but you might actually find new trends and topics as well that uncover Um, patterns and trends that you weren't necessarily uh, aware of uh, in that area. So just looking at that sort of more broadly, one analysis that we did with UN Habitat looking um, at various different public spaces in Nairobi, we were able to use this approach to actually understand how places are used, particularly in areas like Kibera, which is one of the very large informal settlements uh, in Nairobi, which isn't on the formal land register. So there isn't sort of formally um, registered areas of public space and streets. It's just sort of one uh, area. Uh, And so when we look at the digital data, we can see that the CBD um, is incredibly dense. In fact, uh, just an interesting fact here is Nairobi is by a factor of three, the busiest city that we have ever measured. It has got three times more data than Singapore. Uh, and, you know, if you spent time in East Africa, that's not surprising, but it's incredibly mobile economy. Phones are everywhere. Everything from how you pay for your shopping to everything is on your phone. Um, so all all of the, the DJs, all of the um, hawkers sort of street stalls all have kind of digital presence. And so it's incredibly dense. But interestingly, what we find when we're looking at um, uh, other things like uh, Kibera, um, is that we can see that we, like, we've got hairdressing studios and community centres and other destinations that are, are showing up um, in, in that kind of land use. Um, I'm seeing a bunch of questions come through, which I would love to um, talk about perhaps in the chat. As these, are, these are, I think, are really uh, common questions that come up around um, how data is gathered and used and applied uh, in that way. Um, it's not data mining <laughs> but I will I will uh, I'm very happy to talk to that um one just uh, and I'm just just flagging that because I think that'll be every questions going through lots of people's uh minds around that so so how do we apply this this sort of data set to answer uh, place-based challenges of, of various kinds and so understanding that this um information is available there there are two sort of main frameworks that analytics frameworks that analytics has developed to sit on top of this space data set um, and what we're really looking at is is what makes great neighborhoods what name what do neighborhoods need to have in order for people to thrive and prosper and they need to have a, a solid well-being sort of foundation so that you've got access to everything that you need to support your daily life, like schools and childcare and parks and services and also things like sort of social connection and cultural life. And those things are, are quantifiable and score-based. But then secondary to that, we have social life characteristics because neighbourhoods are incredibly unique. And even though one neighbourhood might have a, a similar score to another, perhaps in terms of its, you know, reasons to spend and stay or its... Um, uh, you know spend there and there are some of the economic measures that we look at They will be very very different in terms of their 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 culture and their life and their behavior And so we can quantify these social life characteristics Which are things like the identity and character and diversity and vitality of places Which comes from more of our sort of urban design principles to understand the context about what's driving uh, some of those factors uh, And so we look at those in concert together. So how do we understand social prosperity in terms of economy, physical and community, and then how do we understand that in concert with the social life characteristics? And we will see enormous variation within a walking distance catchment within an area. So we're really looking down at that sort of hyperlocal level. So we've been working with this data for three years in in various different ways around the world, um, particularly in Australia, um, but also in a number of other um context and and based on that it's it's building a, a really rich database of understanding what this data is really strong at what it's what it's uh, it, it's kind of source of truth i guess and how we understand it over time as well and i noticed there was some um Uh, comments about COVID-19, which I'm going to dive into now. Uh, So one of the things that we've been particularly looking at in the last six months is how do we understand behaviour change through COVID, and what does that mean for us in terms of thinking about recovery metrics and vulnerabilities and and at-risk industries? Um, And so the sort of broader... theme uh, and trend that we have observed across the data, particularly looking at Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney over the last six months, has been what we would describe as a new local. Uh, And that's that on the one hand, uh, neighbourhoods have become more localised and I think we all have a personal lived experience of that, particularly under lockdown or even if if less under lockdown, people still um, living and working more locally. But they're also more digital and so by that we mean not just that people are working from home but people are doing click and collect from the local library and that sporting clubs are doing zoom sessions and that every local business and community organization and smaller players has been in some level through a digital transformation like we haven't seen before and it's based on that that I think we're actually seeing a new type of neighborhood that is more digitally engaged and more locally connected. And that's a, actually quite a new kind of unit of weighing, ways of understanding um, cities in that way. So when we look across kind of the, you know, this in this particular example, we're looking at the CBD areas of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane, although we have looked at many, many other um, uh, uh data across the neighbourhoods. And I'm just really interested in that comment, um, Bambi, about nostalgia of neighbourhoods. Because actually, I almost think it's the opposite, is that that the nostalgia of neighbourhoods and kind of the local life is perhaps something that we previously understood. Now what we're seeing is the local living combined with this digital transformation, which makes it actually quite different um, experience to to what we might have seen from perhaps a nostalgic perspective. Um, So in terms of broader um, uh, behavioural shifts, we've um, seen just like say on an activity, you know, where is the activity happening in the city? This is comparing Sydney in January and April where there's just a 90% drop in overall activity that's happening. Um, but there's been a much less significant drop in places like Surrey Hills, um, which have higher residential populations. We can also use this to understand sort of patterns of resilience. And this is looking at the whole of municipality data when we aggregate it right up um, for moorland in Melbourne or for Parramatta, Uh, in Sydney, and and specifically this data in this particular uh, diagram is cut through the the indicators of opportunities to spend and stay. And so what we see somewhere like Parramatta, it it has large centres, so that larger dot down the bottom is Sydney Olympic Park, and we can also see those brighter patches around the the Parramatta CBD. There are large destinations, um, which are really important places, um, uh, particularly in a pre-COVID environment with large events that attract a lot of people. Uh, but as places like sort of, you know, Brunswick, um, Brunswick East, Brunswick West, as you can see, the, the yellow being the Sydney road spine and Moreland on the left. It's actually more smaller opportunities in more parts of the neighbourhood, which in terms of being resilient to larger shocks and stresses such as we've seen um, in um, uh, COVID makes is actually one of the indicators we can look for for resilience. So there are five sort of thematic areas that we we took a look at um, are uh, looking b- between Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane over the last six months, and one of the impacts that COVID's had it's, it's made particularly ind- particular industries vulnerable. Um, and we say at risk industries like hospitality, creative industries, attractions, and and wellbeing, and and beauty, and. When we say at risk, yes, we know that particular businesses have been extremely vulnerable to lockdowns, but what that what that plays out at at a neighbourhood scale, if we look at somewhere like Ligon Street in Carlton, which is main economy is built on hospitality then in fact, the entire suburb is at risk because many of the reasons that people would go there might've been attracted first by the hospitality, but it would then be to stay on and, and either visit other stores, community facilities, libraries, et cetera, which are all integrated. And so when one, one major dominant industry uh, is affected like that, the whole neighborhoods the economy can, can really be impacted. As in other areas, which are more mixed use, there may be more resilience in that regard. Uh, In in contrast to the at-risk industries, we also see certain assets, such as public spaces, which are more in demand. Uh, And I think particularly for the Melbournians in the room, we'll know that there's been a lot of time and attention in in public spaces over the last six months. And so that really shows up some of the perhaps fractures in in our planning and our policies around public spaces. There are some neighbourhoods which have very good access and service to, to green space and others which don't. So just to give you kind of two sort of quick key insights that sort of came out of this data report. This is a free data report that you're very welcome to download from our website if, if it's something that's of interest to you. Is nature is really the new attraction in, in kind of um with the activity centres and places like Preston Market sort of really being um less active during this time, it's nature. And I, I say nature specifically not green space and not um, all public space because places like ovals and playgrounds and plazas and streets which all make up part of our public space network actually have had a lower data um, footprint over this time while nature people are really seeking out green space and that's across all the cities but particularly exaggerated in melbourne where there's actually as of the september figures, this is may 238 percent um increase uh in engagement with nature as here is 112 but what this tells us is that people what neighborhoods are really needing to be resilient in crisis is, is tree spaces green spaces spaces to get out and it really um uh, highlights some different um inequalities that exist in our cities around access to those particular types of public spaces. Um, It also has a big flow on effect for things like property pricing and and things like land use and and I know there's been big conversations, um, New South Wales has committed to making 50% of its golf courses back over to public space and there's similar conversations in Victoria as we're thinking about well what would it look like to reposition our cities to provide more natural space. uh, as part of our, not just sort of nice to have, but part of our resilience strategy. Um, this study we did for the New South Wales government, comparing a bunch of different neighbourhoods around their um, engagement with nature over the COVID period, and, and certainly what we could see is similarly, and it will be difficult to see on the screen there, um, but that nature across, you know, Wagga Wagga and Berowra and other cities, uh, suburbs of Sydney, um, was uh, certainly increased significantly uh, during the COVID period that this is one of the most uh, dominant uh, topics and themes. Second insight I wanna to just touch on um, is hospitality. Uh, and, you know, we've sort of seen that there's been a huge increase in home cooking <laughs> while a decrease in other uh, food and drink. And again, anecdotally, we we know these things to be true, but what happens when we quantify them is that we can see the extent of that change at a local level and what that means for particular industries. And when we're really looking at um, you know hospitality, what we can see is that some places, and I'm just comparing here just two examples, Station Street, Fairfield, if you know it, in Melbourne and Ligon Street, but Fairfield is actually much more mixed use than Ligon Street, has higher diversity, which is one of the sort of social life characteristics we look at. And when, again, this will be very small, but when we're looking at the diversity of place types, what we want to see is like if we have more diversity in terms of the industries, facilities, um, opportunities that that neighbourhood creates, it does offer more things to more people and can can weather the More easily. So, just to close, I just want to go through um, how uh, I share a case study of the Victorian, uh, sorry, New South Wales bushfires of how we've used this data, kind of in a in a case study uh, applied um, with um, uh, customers in Sydney. And you know, we we've sort of really been framing this around what we understand, and it's it's uh, this is only twelve months ago, which is kind of just shocking to remember. given everything else that's happened in 2020 um but you know when it comes to one of the things that I think is really interesting when we look at what the impact you know one of the lessons that we can look at is what happened after Black Saturday 10 years ago when we're thinking about bushfire recovery after the 2019-2020 fires and we had the opportunity in our last business to work on some projects um after the uh uh black saturday bushfires and there was a big approach as there is now after the bushfires and as there is after COVID, around building back better but is better always the most appropriate and this example here is what happened in Dalesford, which had a very dramatic fire after black saturday and there was a lot of investment put into new facilities such as this netball court but you know seven years later when we were working with the council there they, they were mostly playing in the dark without the lights on because the electricity was expensive. Everyone had to take their shoes off because they couldn't afford to buffer the floor that was required. And, you know, this very new fancy um, uh, centre, which seemed like a great asset, actually was too expensive to run. And the outdoor asphalt courts that were there previously were actually just fine. And so sometimes understanding that local context can actually really help us tailor the response that's needed. And we compare that to somewhere like King Lake, which had a, had a very, very strong community response, community-led response to Black Saturday, has also really helped with a really different um, and I think stronger uh, recovery approach, often with, um, you know, lower cost community-led initiatives. When we're thinking about this for, for Sydney, and I'm going back to Piemont, just circling back is the last thing I, I will share today before we can jump into some discussion. Um, the first thing is to establish a baseline. So we actually want to know what the place was like before the fires um, uh, in this case so that we can see you know, what's actually changed and, and again like some of the case studies we can see that it's dominant in hospitality and destinations. We can then use comparison either over time or compared to other neighbourhoods to diagnose the issues in context. And so we were looking at a lot of different suburbs and neighbourhoods in Sydney. And what we found is that the impact on outdoor dining and public spaces in Piemont was really extreme, as opposed to Bankstown, where it actually had very different impacts, um, where it was other things like um, uh, fitness and community facilities that were more impacted there. And so when we're thinking about, okay, well, who's impacted by this hospitality and byron dining and this you know particular areas of, of, of Sydney that has now become, wasn't previously vulnerable, but now very vulnerable because of this disaster. Um, there are there are a range of um, business owners and 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 um, others who use parks and public spaces that need to be brought into this conversation, and then um, working with different partners, looking at ways that uh, that could be alleviated, both through waiving outdoor permits um, that you know increasing cost and providing um, indoor spaces um, instead of outdoors uh, to operate during during that period. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, we can look at how we track uh, that again over time. So we made some change, like did, did waive in the outdoor permits, did making indoor facilities available actually shift the behavior and lifestyle in that place? And what can we learn from that around um, understanding um, how to prioritize our budget investment and projects decisions? Um, So (laughs) there's some examples of of how um, this kind of data has been used, but certainly as we think about what not just a new normal but what a new local um, looks like, um, that we are seeing that cities are becoming both simultaneously more local and more digital, and that does actually create a different um, world than we were previously in. Um, And I would love to discuss uh, some of those things um, with you and um, please feel free to reach out to us also at Neighbourlytics. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit Communities in Control.